from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The secretaries of all three military branches and the chiefs of staff of the services believe Secretary of Defense Mark Esper should stop the transfer of military medical facilities to the Defense Health Agency. The service secretaries and chiefs write in a memo to Esper that the COVID outbreak shows the reform of the system, quote, creates unnecessary complexity and increases inefficiency and cost. Military.com reports the leaders are asking Esper to create a working group to study options for running the military hospitals. A strike at Bath Ironworks in Maine is closer to ending tonight after the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers and General Dynamics have agreed on a tentative deal to end the strike. Work on seven new destroyers slowed down during that strike. Breaking Defense reports the union's local says the deal will keep language from previous agreements that will prevent the shipyard from using more non-union workers. The Space Force has its first official doctrine document. The Space Capstone publication says the force's first priority is preserving, quote, freedom of action in space. Air Force magazine reports more doctrinal, pub, uh, doctrinal publications for the Space Force are already in the works. Ezra Cohen now performs the duties of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. He's the fifth leader to take on these duties in the past three years. Cohen's the latest in a, on a long list of acting and performing duties of officials in the department. Bob Works, former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Mr. Secretary, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. How do you go about finding and recruiting good people to take these roles, the kind of people that are qualified to take these positions in an administration of any party? Well, I can only speak to my experience when I was in the Obama administration, and it all starts with the transition team. One of the key roles of the transition team is to identify the bench of people who are interested in serving the country in the Department of Defense or other cabinet posts and uh, keeping a tab on people who want to come in and constantly refreshing it. So uh, the experience that I had was we had a very active and very effective White House uh, personnel office and they would identify candidates. We would have a White House liaison officer over at the Pentagon who would exchange information with the White House personnel office, tell them uh, the type of positions we were looking for. And in most cases, the Secretary of Defense would have uh, an opportunity to interview the person and to either say, look, I'd rather have someone else or this person is fine. So it all starts with that transition team and goes throughout the administration. And the, uh, the going throughout the administration, I think, is as important, isn't it, as the initial transition team? You want to keep that pipeline full for the entire four or eight years that an administration is in office. That's exactly right, Francis. I mean, these jobs are very, very uh, hard on people, take long hours. Um, and so uh, you always constantly, constantly have to have a backbench of people who are willing to serve and are qualified to serve. 
Another key aspect is some of them need to be confirmed by the Senate. So you have to do all of the betting, uh, et cetera. Given that these jobs are such a grind, Bob, how do you keep tabs on the people that are in place to determine this is somebody who can continue, we need to keep this person fresh, and this is somebody uh, who's doing a good job but maybe is at the end of the line and, and it's time to switch out? The leaders who are in the different positions, generally at the undersecretary of defense level, uh, and certainly the deputy secretary and the secretary, uh, keep track of the people on the staff, keep track of their performance, uh, take input from the White House, uh, take input from people both uh, over the uh, serving person as well as their subordinates. And uh, whenever it becomes evident that a person needs to be switched out, then you start to work with White House personnel to see how the best way to do it. In some cases, it's just a round peg in a square hole. So you might want to shift the person from one cabinet department to another into a job that better suits their skills and expertise. Um, and then there are people who just say, hey, it's time to go. And generally, the rule is you need to give the White House uh, personnel office at least two or three or four months of advance notice so that they can go through the vetting process for their replacements, et cetera. Yeah, what I was getting at there more is the idea that since these jobs are so difficult, I imagine the burnout level is fairly high at some point in time, not so much that somebody wasn't a good fit for the job, but just they, these jobs have to be exhausting, Bob. They are, and uh, especially with people with kids, you know, just like any other uh, parent who's in a very, very high-profile job, uh, it's hard making a balance. The work-life balance in the Pentagon is very, very difficult to maintain. So you have people who generally stay, they try to stay for at least two years uh, in an administration, and some try to stay for the entire administration. Uh, but you're right, having a deep bench of people who are qualified is absolutely critical because you have people leaving for all sorts of reasons. How wide can you cast the net, Bob? Were there places that you looked for talent that maybe didn't seem obvious on the surface? I think everybody imagines that uh, you look to the Hill, you look to think tanks, there's kind of this uh, government in waiting when a new party comes to office or when a party that's uh, in power continues to a second term, uh, that these candidates exist. But I wonder if there are places where you looked that maybe aren't the usual suspects as far as places to find candidates. Well, the deputy secretary isn't real, you know, central to the recruiting uh, operation and you get ideas from all sorts of people, people who were in the campaign, people who are in the party, uh, people, as you said, who are on the Hill. There are a lot of quality candidates who are in the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee, for example. Um, you get recommendations from industry. You get recommendations from think tanks, as you said. There's a wide variety of people who are interested in serving in the government, and uh, generally they're are all sorts of different ways to identify them. About 30 seconds left, Bob. What was the, the greatest tool that you had, do you think, 
to keep people that you wanted to make sure stayed working for you? The mission, without question. Uh, the people who serve in the Department of Defense are com you know, committed to the mission, committed to the young men and women who volunteer to serve our country, absolutely critical about furthering our national interests. So you can't get much more consequential than the jobs in the Department of Defense. And that generally is enough to keep people around for as long as they can. Bob Work, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. It's great to be here, Francis. Have a good time and be safe. Thanks, Bob. Up next, the case for moving too fast for with the Defense Production Act. Straight ahead on Government Matters. Striking the right balance to defense acquisitions during the coronavirus. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. President Trump has invoked the Defense Production Act 33 times since the beginning of the pandemic. Total spending through the DPA is about $3.2 billion to fight uh, COVID-19. The government could face problems when working to procure the items that it needs so quickly. Bill Greenwald's visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. Bill, thanks for coming on the program. What are you seeing as the government uses the DPA in various capacities? What's jumping out at you, Bill? Well, I think there are uh, the, the issue of, you know, going too fast. And, uh, uh, you know, traditionally DPA has been used about, oh, you know, 40, 50 million dollars a year. And now putting that kind of money through a system that uh, may not be uh, quite ready to do that could create all sorts of uh, potential uh, problems down the road. There are a number of questions around the most recent invocation of the DPA bill, and that was a $765 million loan to Kodak for drug ingredients, raised eyebrows on, in Wall, on Wall Street especially because nobody had any idea Kodak knew anything at all about creating drug ingredients. Uh, turns out they didn't, and there's some other things going on there behind the scenes potentially. Is that a sign of the DPA not working right, moving too quickly, or is that something that we we might be able to attribute to some other issue? Uh, I, I think it's it, it's relating to how quickly they're trying to go, and uh, and frankly, applying this to not only just COVID supply and COVID vaccine development, but now we're trying to get into industrial-based planning as far as dealing with precursors of of chemicals that, uh, frankly, the Chinese have a. Uh, uh, a monopoly on. I mean, this is all good policy, but the issue is, should you, you know, move move this quickly on on something like that, and without having kind of a complete competition or or, or vetting of this? And, and also, this is a new authority. Uh, I should say it's a new old authority. We have not done a DPA loan uh, in in quite some time, and so just trying to get that off the the the, uh, the, the mark with a new agency that's now in charge of doing that loan, all sorts of interesting things could happen. Take me back to the beginning of the DPA. What was the intention when it was created? Who's supposed to use it? And what kinds of uses was it intended for, Bill? Well, it really goes back in to, to World War II when we were trying to 
uh, 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 increase uh, production and, 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 and bring in the commercial marketplace to do defense type production and development. And uh, that, those authorities in World War II lapsed. And when the Korean War uh, kicked off, the idea was that we needed the same type of authorities for Korea. So the Defense Production Act of 1950 was passed to do this, to allow the, Depart the Department of Defense to invest in firms, to partner with them, to give loans, to, to create the industrial base that's needed for a rapid mobilization uh, of, of uh, capability. Is there a debate in the defense acquisition community about whether it's appropriate to use the DPA for things like COVID response? Because when I think about defense, I think national security and I think hardware and items needed to fight war. Or does the fact that the president's using the terminology and others, to be fair, are using the terminology we're in a war against the virus, does that make it kind of okay, I guess? Well, the Congress has given the uh, expanded the authority beyond DOD to DHS and uh, uh, HHS and, and and so on over the years in to, to deal with these type of situations. The issue is, you know, do do we need to like uh, always react so fast in the sense that you know we should have been prepared and started thinking about this years ago or or in this case in january and and starting to to, to look at the industrial base and execute and the fact that uh, all of a sudden everything is a crisis and we we begin uh, uh you know putting money down on on, on the dpa uh is, is is going to create problems that i think congress is going to start looking at and frankly it'll potentially impact the authority as, as we go forward. Well, I'll ask the same question about special authorities like this that people ask about other kinds of special authorities all the time. At what point do we, OTAs is one example, at what point do we decide, instead of that being the exception to the rule, at what point do we decide it should become the rule if it's a more efficacious way of getting what an organization needs in government? Well, it depends on what the, the, uh, uh, the, authorities are trying to do. So for example, for OTAs, the idea is we want to try to bring in non-traditional companies that don't necessarily use uh, uh, the, the traditional contracting method. And, and the traditional contracting method is in place for a number of reasons, particularly when we have sole source uh, arrangements with contractors that are monopolies that we need to figure out a way to price and, 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 and assess their costs. If we're trying to bring in somebody like a Google or an Amazon or an Apple uh, or, a, or a venture-backed uh, uh, private firm, and, and th there are other things we have to put in place, and, and, and those, those uh, 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 capabilities are, 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 the, are the best way to, the way to do that. Um, I, I don't think we're quite ready to take uh, OTAs and, and, and bring them to the traditional uh, contractors. But at the same time, that's actually a lot of things what we're doing right now, and we could get in trouble for doing it. Bill Greenwald, thanks very much as always. Up next, explosive nuclear testing on U.S. soil. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pros and cons of the moves that could be coming. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act includes authorization for projects related to nuclear testing. The House version of the bill would block funding for nuclear tests. Eric Gomez is Director of Defense Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the major differences here uh, between House and Senate versions? Is it as simple as House says no, Senate says yes, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, it's it's pretty much as simple as that. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton introduced an amendment in the Senate version of the 21 NDAA to have this um, $20 million in funding be available from the Stockpile Responsiveness Program uh, for nuclear testing should the decision be made by the administration to restart it. It barely came out of committee, 14 votes yes, 13 against. And then the House uh, Hask said no. And also the House Appropriations Committee also said that they would not allow funding for it. So that is the, the big dividing line. Senate wants it, House doesn't. What is the history here, Eric? When was the last time these tests were conducted in the United States? Where are they conducted, if at all, now? What's, kind of what's led us up to this point? The primary testing site is out in Nevada, and the last test was conducted there in September of 1992. It was called Divider, a 20-kiloton nuclear test, and it was the last one before the U.S. signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Um, that treaty has not been ratified, so it has not entered into force, but the U.S. adheres to pretty much all of its provisions uh, and doesn't, we haven't had a nuclear test since 1992. The United States has also conducted the most nuclear tests of any country. We have over a thousand. The Russians conducted about 730, and the Chinese, by comparison, only conducted about 47 tests. Uh, in their entire nuclear program. So the United States has tested the most. Most of those tests were done underground in Nevada at the test site, and the last one was in 1992. If this uh, money makes it into the final bill that the president signs, what comes of that? Who does what with that money? So that would be uh, Department of Energy, uh, NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration. They would use the funds to make preparations at the Nevada test site to restart a test. Um, we haven't done one in a long time, so this might require digging a new uh, underground shaft to test the weapon within, installing equipment inside it to measure the effects of the blast and to installing equipment around the area to measure the effects of the weapon, and then actually selecting one out of the stockpile to test. The um, Someone in the Defense Department has said that the test could happen on relatively short notice within a matter of months. However, I think there's a lot of doubt among the expert community of if they were to do that so quickly, would they have the proper instrumentation in place in order to get an accurate measurement? Or at that point, would the test done on a quick turnaround be mostly for a political signal to the international community and not have much to do with actually verifying the effectiveness of a weapon. What is What are the people who are in favor of this, Senator Cotton and others, saying is the reason to do this vis-a-vis -vis the national defense strategy? The department has been very, uh, very clear about everything that it wants to do relating somehow to the NDS. Do we have a sense of what the connection is with this test to the overall strategy of the NDS? The best reason to test a nuclear weapon is that it's the most accurate way to tell how it functions if you were to use it in a conflict scenario. And the United States and many other countries that have no longer done explosive testing for about 30 years now since the 90s, they have 
abilities to test weapons without having them actually explode. Uh, computer simulations, uh, the laser ignition facility out in uh, out west can can do that for us. And the but these are sort of cited as not being as effective as just testing outright and just detonating a warhead out of the arsenal. Um, I think there's a lot of concern on the on the protesting side that as the United States starts to do some more nuclear modernization, as new warhead variants are added into the arsenal, and as Los Alamos and other facilities start to revamp plutonium pits, or plutonium pit construction, that there might not be enough information on how effective these things are or how reliable they are. So that's the most common pro-argument for it. You mentioned um, that as far as the scorecard on this, Hask is opposed, HackD is opposed, Sask in favor. Do we know yet where uh, SACD is on this? I don't believe so. I, don't, I haven't seen uh, their statements on it yet. But it's clear that it's a pretty, it was still pretty contentious even in Sask. It only came out of the committee by a vote. And in an NDAA process in 2020, in 2020 for the 2021 bill, that's been remarkably easy uh, by all standards compared to last year where there was a drawn out fight and the Democrats in the House were pushing hard on certain things and they ultimately didn't get them. I think this is a rare instance this year of a major point of disagreement between the two chambers of Congress. And I expect the Democrats to fight this one hard. Um, will that result in them getting what they want? It's hard to say, but I think the very, very narrow margin in the Senate Armed Services Committee for passing that amendment shows that it's probably not going to get to the final version of the bill. Um, but we haven't heard, I haven't heard what the Senate Appropriations Committee wants to do with this. Eric Gomez, great insight. Thanks very much. Thanks. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.